This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Boss Files. I'm Poppy Harlow. Over the last few weeks, I've been speaking to CEOs in some of the industries most impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. I've talked to people who head major restaurants, food supply chain experts, educators, people who have had to rapidly respond to the crisis that blindsided so many of us. On today's episode, though, I talked to someone who wasn't blindsided, someone who has been sounding the alarm for years about how vulnerable we are to pandemics, Melinda Gates. Through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, she and her husband, Bill, have worked from the very beginning of the outbreak to fund efforts to fight the spread of COVID-19 around the world. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will select and fund seven vaccine candidates. It will provide as much as $20 million more to help public health authorities in Africa and Southeast Asia to build up their disease relief efforts. Chinese President Xi Jinping has thanked Bill Gates for his foundation's contribution in the fight against the coronavirus. I talked to Melinda from my home studio about how the Gates Foundation has been putting billions of dollars to work to fight this pandemic. And she has a stark warning about what COVID-19 will mean for Africa and the developing world. When I saw what China had to do to isolate such an enormous part of their population, my first thought was Africa. How in the world are they going to deal with this? We talk about why the U.S. was slow to recognize the risk of this virus, her foundation's efforts to fund the search for a vaccine, and why she thinks we must keep talking about gender inequality throughout all of this. Here's our conversation. Melinda Gates, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having me, Poppy. If we could just start with something you wrote in your opinion piece recently, you said, one moment I receive updates on disease tracking models and the next I hear that someone that I know is struggling to breathe. Mm. What has this been like for you personally? I think for us personally, you know, our life has changed drastically, just like it has for many, many all Americans around the country. Um, But we recognize we have privilege as a family. Um, but Mm -hmm. it definitely has touched us deeply, you know, to know that you have friends who are struggling for breath. That's something you don't soon forget. Have you lost anyone to this, if I can ask? We've been very lucky as a family that we have not lost anyone to this, but we've had a friend who was in the ICU and has, looks like has pulled through now. Um, We've had other friends who've been in and out of the hospital needing oxygen during this time, Uh, families that we're very close to. And so, We were there uh, walking the journey with them and trying to hold some empathy and compassion while they went through these difficult circumstances. I don't think we ever expected to be here. I never expected to be interviewing you from my, you know, little room outside my bathroom. But these are the days. Look, the work that you and Bill, the foundation, have done for years on pandemics and on HIV, tuberculosis, malaria, Ebola, even given all of that, you still say... We've never faced a crisis of this magnitude in our own backyard. Why do you think we were so ill-prepared? 
Well, I think we haven't recognized as a global community that we are a global community. And if we had recognized that and stepped up to it, we would have prepared for this. We would have systems in place, both monitoring, alerting very quickly. We would have had test kits available. We would have just... You know, we plan for things as nations. We plan for earthquakes. We plan for tsunamis. We plan for tornadoes. We didn't plan for disease. And I don't think that will ever happen now, thank God, again in the world. But we should have prepared. So let's talk about what you're doing about it now. Uh, You and Bill and the Gates Foundation are literally putting billions of dollars right now behind the ability to quickly manufacture essentially factories for eight different potential vaccines just in case one or two of them may work. Is that right? Yeah. So let me clarify what the foundation's doing. We are working on with the FDA on how can we do home test kits eventually to have those available and hook them up to technology so we know who can go back into society and work safely or not. So we're working on that component. We're working on disease modeling. Then we're working on therapeutics, that is medicines. And then finally, this category Mm -hmm. of vaccines. The vaccine is the ultimate solution. What we are doing is preparing with our many, many, many partners. We're bringing compounds forward. And then we have about eight different vaccines candidates that will go into trials. Those are the ones we're working on. Their partners working on others as well. And then it's the pharmaceutical industry who's going to come together, and we're hearing from, to prepare the manufacturing so it's ready to go when this vaccine comes out of trials. And that's where all of that money from the foundation, a big chunk of it goes toward, okay, if one of these works, we're going to be able to accelerate the production of it to get it out to everyone. So we're involved in the science of bringing the compounds forward and working through the clinical trials. The manufacturing Mm -hmm. will actually be up to the pharmaceutical companies. And that's how we've always worked on vaccines before. And we've we've worked with, with these scientific partners for many, many years on creating vaccines. But it's the partners who will do the actual manufacturing of it. There's a little glimmer of hope, and that is a human trial, human testing beginning for one of these vaccines and the development of it partly backed by you guys um, from a company called Innovio. How, How promising is that? I'd say it looks promising. We wouldn't have put it into preclinical trials if it wasn't. But, you know, to be honest, since we've been in this business before of vaccines, you want to have many candidates going into trials. So we obviously put our most promising ones forward first, but I'm going to feel better when we have all eight into clinical trials. So much of your work and your commitment, Melinda, has been to inequality and closing gaps. And what makes me so sad on top of this crisis is the disparity that it is bringing to light even more. Like the fact that the data show us that African-Americans in the United States are getting coronavirus more and are dying at a much higher rate. And we know part of why. We know because of the inequities in society and what they face on so many fronts. But when you started to see these numbers come in, what did you think? It was heartbreaking when the numbers started to come in. We thought that might be the case. Um, but what I see is that, you know, COVID-19, if it, it affects everybody, but affects people differently. And the, the most vulnerable are the most at risk. And so we're seeing these inequities that have existed 
in the U.S. healthcare system, we're seeing them be exposed. And it is tragic to see those communities dealing with this in the way they're having to. It is tragic, but I am sort of trying to find a way and answers from experts like you in terms of what can be done at this stage. You can't undo the structural inequality that has led to to many of them dying at a higher rate from this uh, or the lack of testing being as broadly offered or available. But I wonder if there are things you think that governments, state, local, federal can do now. Well, we need a national response, and it needs to be equitable. This is a national yeah. responsibility, and what you need to do is get testing out and get it out at scale, and you need to figure out who needs it first. So you start with the healthcare workers, and then you go mm-hmm. to these most vulnerable populations so that if they, if somebody contracts COVID, they can hopefully self-isolate themselves or reach the healthcare system in a way that they can start to get services. But without a national testing response, we can't help the most vulnerable in our communities. And that's just not happening yet. I can hear the frustration in, in your voice because, frankly, money uh, money can only go so far if you do not have a coordinated global response. And again, you guys at the foundation saw something like this coming. What was the moment like for you, Melinda, if there was one when this hit you personally, whether you were you know trying to go to sleep at night or preparing you know dinner with, with the family that you thought, oh, my gosh, this is this is what has come and we weren't ready. When I saw what China had to do to to isolate such an enormous part of their population, my first thought was Africa. How in the world are they going to deal with this? When you see, I've been in townships all over Africa in slums. When we talk about in our country physical distancing and then hand washing, if you live in a slum, you can't physical distance. You have to go out and get your meal. You don't have clean water to wash your hands. And so as soon as I saw that, and we know from the foundation's work how quickly disease spreads, I thought, oh my gosh, we have a crisis on our hands that we aren't even talking about yet in the United States and what's going to happen to the rest of the world. That's how much worse it's going to be in the developing world. It's going to be horrible in the developing world. And part of the reason you're seeing the case numbers still don't look very bad is because they don't have access to very many tests. So, you know, look at Ecuador. Look at what's going on in Ecuador. They're putting bodies out on the street. You're going to see that in countries in Africa. And so where the United States, we have this um, approach that, you know, I see many, many governors trying to do the right things, but there's price competition for protective gear for healthcare workers and for appropriate masks for healthcare workers. Are you kidding me? We need to get those manufactured and out for everybody because Africa, they can't price compete for those commodities. We have to have a national response that gets these commodities out equitably in the United States and equitably out around the world. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Melinda tells me how this pandemic disproportionately impacts women. And we spoke before President Trump's decision to halt funding to the World Health Organization. I asked her, though, what such a move, if it were to come, would mean. That's up next. And now back to my conversation with Melinda Gates. 
One thing that I was struck by reading the the annual letter this year from the foundation released just a you know just in February, you and Bill wrote quote philanthropy takes risks that governments can't and corporations won't. Our work is working with partners all over the world, right? And so we were able to make investments very quickly and very um, collaboratively and to try and set up mechanisms so that all the medicines, for instance, this therapeutics accelerator that we've set up and that we're involved in, so that we can look for a medicine that if you get COVID-19, we might actually have a medicine that helps you treat it so you don't get as sick. Because we set up this collaborative method, then when we had all these philanthropists and businesses calling us and saying, what can I give money to besides in my local community? I wish Americans could see the number of emails we've gotten and phone calls we've gotten, (laughs) people doing the right thing. We had a place they could come. MasterCard helped fund it. The Dells helped fund it. So many people, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, they're doing the right thing and they're funding it. This has to be done in a collaborative way. And so the foundation was Mm -hmm. able to do that and to work with the FDA early on to say, are there different ways to set up test kits, different ways to do the swabbing so that eventually we can have home healthcare kits that people can get at home and get a quick response. So we're able to work on many of those pieces very, very, very quickly and in tandem as our partners were were coming forward. You see the best of humanity at the worst of times. And there there is no question, you just described it, I see it every day in people. Um, Gender disparity, this really has been your commitment, right? Getting a moment of lift, as your book is called, for, for, for all of us, for women around the world. Um, but you think that this pandemic is just actually going to set us back in terms of gender disparity, that it will disproportionately fall on women. What do you mean? I think we have to make sure that gender inequalities are spoken about right now and all the way through this and well beyond this. Here's what I know is that 70% of the healthcare workers around the world are women. Women do more than two times the unpaid labor in their homes. So they're caring for people in the health system and they're caring for people at home. And at the same time, we have this disparity that we're not collecting what we call disaggregated data. What that means is we're not differently differentiating data that comes in about men and women. Why is that important? Even though the death rate right now is higher for men, we know that for women, domestic violence is going up. We have to be able to track to keep them safe, their families safe, and to keep our communities Mm -hmm. safe. And that has to be done and is not being done. On top of this, there is the pressing question and debate, and I think a debate that will rage on for a long time, uh, even as this passes, and that is economic pain versus the physical toll and the the human toll uh, and the debate over how much economic pain is worth it. What do you think? I think we have to do what's right to keep ourselves and everybody safe. And I think over time, if we get appropriate testing done at a national level, we will be able to eventually open pockets of society up and have very small group settings. And we need to test that. And we need to find out, we need to listen and watch the data of what's going on in places like South Korea or Germany or Wuhan as they've started to reopen. If we can test very, very quickly, 
we can start to say, okay, no, oops, you have symptoms, you need to stay home. Oh no, you don't have symptoms or yeah. you have antibodies in your blood. You, you actually had COVID, maybe you didn't know it. You can go to work. We will be able to do mm -hmm. that, but you have to have the testing and it has to hook up to a national database you know, where we can show on our cell phones, I have the antibodies, I I'm good to go, or I got tested this morning, here's the date, so I'm good to work today. Right. That is what we have to do. And once we do that, then we will start to be able to reopen society. But we are not close to that yet. We're not. And I think it, that's why it's a bit alarming for some people to hear, well, we could be open in, you know, a, a, a month's time. I wonder what, what keeps you up at night right now. What keeps me up at night are the vulnerable populations. Um, you know, it, what keeps me up at night is in the U.S., the kids who are falling behind because they don't have access to broadband or to a computer, so they're not getting yeah. to continue their learning. What keeps me up at night is the domestic violence statistics that are going up in France and Canada and the U.S. and India. Yeah. Can you imagine being in your home in a situation with someone who's abusive? What keeps me up at night are the vulnerable populations who I know in Africa, or I've met some of them. Um, I can't imagine being a parent in those circumstances. And those are the things that keep me up at night. And the homeless population, I think about a lot. Obviously in Seattle, it's a big issue. And if you were homeless and you were getting mental health services, some of that's being of done online now. But again, do they have access to mm -hmm. a computer, to a phone, to the medication they need? Are you kidding? Wow. <laughs> and if you're a child with special needs, distance learning is not easy for anyone, let alone it's, it's nearly impossible for families whose children have special needs. Um, before we go, I just said two quick other questions for you. One is on, on funding. You've been so vocal about how important foreign aid is around the world. And we heard the president discuss even the potential of cutting off funding to the WHO. What would the real implications of that be? Politics aside, just the health implications. So the WHO is a credible institution that has helped us through other pandemics and other epidemics. Just take Ebola, our most recent one. The WHO was fundamental during that crisis. The WHO absolutely needs to be funded. We have worked with them for well over a decade as a foundation, and they mm -hmm. need to work with us on a coordinated response as a global community. So they're fundamental to this. What is your hope, Melinda, for for the world we're, we're left with, right? So just on a personal note, for me, I have every blessing in the world. Mm -hmm. And this is still hard. It's still hard to, to, to juggle two little kids and two full-time jobs and no childcare. It's still hard. But I'm luckier than almost anyone, right? And so are you. Um, but it's also given me time to reflect and think about what was I doing with all that time before and to sort of hear the words that my two-year-old son learns every day and to see what my daughter creates and to really fully immerse myself. I wonder what, you're, what you think about in terms of wondering and hoping for the world that we're left with after this, after all the despair and devastation, what may come out on the other side. Well, I think this pandemic has affected us all deeply and affected our psyche and what I hope is that the best of human nature will come out. We see it. When you see the artists online, the Rotterdam Orchestra, who's figuring out how to provide beautiful music online, or you see people on their roofs, you know, clapping for the healthcare workers, or you see mm -hmm. 
uh, family members taking a meal to a neighbor who's shut in, an elderly person, and leaving on their front door. I hope that the best in humanity comes forward and we start to care for everybody. And we start to say, look, we need to have a more equitable and just society. And so that we don't just raise to the best of our humanity in a crisis, but we raise to the best of our humanity at all times. And I think we're all having some time to reflect on that and to show more compassion and empathy. And I think those are the pieces that keep me hopeful at night. I certainly hope so. All right, let's, let's, let's end on this. Everyone's always intrigued with what it might be like in the Gates household. And you're, again, luckier than, than almost anyone. But you still got two teenage kids at home, right? Um, what's it like at home right now, Melinda? Well, a lot of us are online uh, studying or doing <laughs> video teleconference calls. Um, I have never had very good cooking skills, so I'm doing a lot of heating these days. My 17-year-old daughter the other night when she had her hands in a, a sink full of sudsy water with all the pots and pans said, I think I know Uh what it feels like to be a housewife now. (laughs) So we're divvying up the chores. And um, every night at dinner, we've always had this tradition of saying one thing we're each thankful for. And uh, every night at dinner now comes up, you know, health, being able to continue an education, being able to have a meal on the table. So we are incredibly grateful for what Mm -hmm. we're able to have and uh, feel incredibly lucky and privileged as do I. Um, Thank you for the time. And also thank you for the commitment of so much of your time and funds to fighting uh, pandemics like this around the world, not just now, but for for years prior and years to come. We appreciate, I think, as a society, all you and Bill continue to do and the whole team at the Gates Foundation. Thanks, Melinda. And good luck on these trials. Keep us posted. Okay. Thanks, Poppy. Thank you so much for being with me today. If you enjoyed this episode of Boss Files, make sure to keep tuning in as we talk to more leaders every week about how they are navigating all of the uncertainty of this pandemic. And be sure to tune in to CNN's other podcasts, stay up to date on coronavirus and all the latest developments. Every weekday, you can hear my colleague, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, on his podcast, Coronavirus Fact Versus Fiction. He walks through the latest news, everything you need to know. You should also tune in to some of my other favorite CNN podcasts, especially David Axelrod's Axe Files, The Daily DC, and many more. You can find those at CNN.com slash podcasts. As always, tell me what you think. What did you like? What did you not like? What do you want to hear more of? Leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app and tell me who you want to hear from. You can find me every day on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. We'll be back next week with another episode of Boss Files. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.